You're Welcome right. to the Dipshit Files, episode 83. I'm Mr. Scriptkeeper. And I'm Mrs. Scriptkeeper. And what do we have in store for them today? Oh, we got the story of H.H. Uh, Holmes. Yay. Yeah. True crime. Absolutely. One of the worst humans that ever lived. I have to agree. Okay. Well, fucking terrible. So that... Friendly friends? Yeah, I, yeah, <laughs> I have a feeling, yes. Fuck. All right, here we go. On Sunday, the 8th of October, way back in 1871, the city of Chicago was ablaze. A ferocious fire was quickly making its way through the city, totally destroying everything in its path and reducing everything to ash. People speculate that the fire began in the O'Leary family cottage after Mrs. O'Leary's cow kicked over a lantern at some point that day and set the barn on fire, Shit. which was quickly engulfed by the flames and then began to spread on the wind towards the city. Most of the buildings in the city were made of wood. Even the buildings that looked as if they were made from stone were hiding a wooden frame structure underneath the fake exterior. Hmm. The city was also made up of wooden sidewalks, and the streets were covered with sawdust, which made the city of Chicago basically a tinderbox, mm -hmm. just waiting for a spark. Right. When the fire started, the initial alarm went mostly unnoticed. And by the time the fire brigade got the message, they were sent to the wrong location. No. This mistake left the fire to spread out of control. On top of all of this, the city was still suffering from a very serious drought, which left the earth and the plant life dry and scorched after an extremely hot summer people probably thought they were in hell right these parched conditions of course did nothing to hinder the spread of the fire which even crossed the river moving on to consume most of the city to quote an article from the chicago tribune quote the hellish flames reached high into the sky lighting up the night whilst burning hot embers hopped from rooftop to rooftop hmm. Even the intense heat that traveled on the wind was enough to ignite the wooden structures, end quote. Hmm. The Chicago Fire Department at 185 firefighters and 17 horse-drawn steam pumpers became useless when the city's water supply ran dry. Without water, there wasn't much the fire brigade could do, and the fire ravaged the city, jumping from building to building. On the 9th of October, the fire had started to burn itself out, and in some ironic twist of fate, the skies opened up and it began to rain. Mm -hmm. However, the fire still continued to burn until the following day. Now, after all was said and done, the fire had destroyed a massive area of the city and had spread four miles long by a mile wide and had claimed the lives of approximately 300 people while leaving over a thousand people homeless. More than 1,700 buildings were reduced to a smoldering pile of ash. Wow. The news of the fire spread just as quickly as the fire itself, especially to the bigger cities. But out in the countryside, news seemed to trickle in rather than flow. And over 900 miles away in the town of Gilmanton, the news slowly spread 
amongst the locals who were both fascinated and horrified by the news of the fire that had killed so many people Mm -hmm. and laid waste to the city. However, for one young resident of Gilmanton, the news of the fire was especially thrilling. Ten-year-old Herman Webster Mudgett took in every detail, the blaze, the terror, the destruction, the loss, and especially the death. Herman had a dark side even at the age of 10, but he'd become very efficient at hiding this darkness and not showing it to the outside world. As he absorbed every haunting detail from the Great Fire of Chicago, he imagined his parents trapped by the fire as their flesh blistered, burst, and burned to the bone until they were only ash. Fuck. And this thought comforted Herman, who we all know as H.H. Holmes. Now it's time for part one of our two-part story on H.H. Holmes. Holmes was born Herman Webster Mudgett in Gilmanton, New Hampshire on May 16, 1861. He was the third child of four born to Levi Horton Mudgett and, I hope I pronounce this correctly, Theodate Page Price. I've never heard that name before. May we please hear them again? Levi Horton Mudgett. Levi Horton Mudgett. Yes, and Theodate. Theodate. <laughs> Page Price. Fuck, okay. Yeah, I, I guess that's how you put it. Theodate? I don't know. Theodate. 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 I looked it's for, Theodate. I looked for a way to pronounce that name. Commandant I, Theodate. I couldn't find it. Yeah. Uh, and everyone that I listened to that said that name said Theodate. Right. So. Hopefully that's correct. Well, if it's wrong, Godspeed. (laughs) In the book Depraved, Holmes is described as a slightly built boy with blue eyes and brown hair. And according to witnesses at the time, Holmes was a quiet child, very bright, and just seemed like an ordinary, if not mature-minded child. Hmm. His father was a hardworking man, and if he wasn't out working as a painter then you may have found him farming. Mm. Now, it's been said that he was a very strict man, and Holmes would have often been at the receiving end of his violent outbreaks, Mm. while his mother would just stand there and allow whatever course of punishment his father felt fit to dish out. She just never really stepped in. And it was assumed that this was where Holmes' hatred for his mother and father began. He detested the pair and couldn't wait to be his own man and leave his childhood behind. Now, it's safe to say that Holmes had known for some time that there was something different about him, something that separated him from the other children in the school. Now, he was an intelligent child, but deep down, something else festered. When Holmes was younger, there was an incident with a few school bullies that terrified Holmes, but also brought out a different side of him. Now, every day as Holmes made his way to school, he had no option but to walk past the local doctor's office, which was always open for business. Holmes feared doctors. He associated them with being sick and having to ingest this foul, awful-tasting medicine that the doctors prescribed. And he'd also heard horror stories that the doctor liked to keep hacked-off limbs and human heads that he preserved and stored inside his office. Hmm. Gross. Hmm. Now, out of fear, Holmes ran past the doctor's door rather than walking. This didn't go unnoticed by a few older students who decided that one day they would make him face his fears, but not in a constructive way. One particular day, as Holmes walked past the, well, ran past the doctor's office, he was grabbed by one of the older students and pulled, 
kicking and screaming into the building that he feared so much. These bullies brought, quickly brought him face to face with the doctor's display skeleton that stood creepily in the dark corner of the room, looking back at him with big, dark voids where his eyes had once been. The more Herman sobbed and begged, the closer the boys brought him to the face of death. It was in this moment that the doctor returned from his errand and the bullies dropped young Holmes and then fled back into the street as Holmes sat sobbing at the bony feet of the skeleton. Hmm. Here, he felt the fear subside and a fascination take its place. Isn't this a start of Karate Kid? <laughs> I think it might be a little bit. A fascination that would stay with him f actually forever. Was it bonsai trees? A fascination for anatomy. Oh, okay. okay. At around 11 years old, Holmes was already carrying out his own dissections on frogs and small reptiles. He liked to cut them open and see how they worked. And then he decided to move up to rabbits and cats and oh. eventually dogs. Sheesh. Young Holmes preferred his specimens to be um, alive oh as he sliced their flesh with a blade and opened them up. And once a kill was complete, he enjoyed keeping little mementos, certain body parts or skulls of the animals he slaughtered, and he would hide them in a small box. That kind of goes against the Hippocratic Oath. I yeah, think. that's kind of gross. Or some sort of oath it goes <sighs> against. Holmes was a distant child and didn't show much interest in friendship, although he did have a friend at some point in his childhood named Tom. One day, while he and Tom were exploring an abandoned house, Tom had an accident and fell to his death from the landing of the house. It's said that Holmes was asked later how he felt about his friend's death, to which he basically replied, I prefer to be alone. Now, it's not known for sure if Holmes had a hand in Tom's death, but it's safe to say that he never felt any loss for his friend. It's questionable if Holmes really felt much for anyone at all, mm -hmm. really. Uh, and it was speculated. They thought he was you know, a creepy little kid, and they thought maybe he had something to do with it. Mm -hmm. uh, it just didn't make sense. If only they knew the guy he'd become. Right. Years later, when Holmes was 17, he met a young lady named Clara Loverling, and he enrolled in medical school soon after. In his college years, Holmes would often steal cadavers from the morgue, nice. or even nice. rob graves and sell them to medical science, nice. or he'd create a false identity and take out life insurance on the corpse. What? Wow. What? Just gaming the system, huh? Okay, this guy's gross. And likes to fuck people over for money. <laughs> he would then set up the dead bodies, recreating a deadly accident, mainly fires. Uh, yeah, there's a red flag. Yeah. So, so the body was unrecognizable. And then somehow claim life insurance by running a complicated scam. He's got to be doing this by himself, man, because somebody's going to be like, uh. Yeah, a college student. This is pretty bad, bro. I don't right? think you can get, this isn't legal. Well, this is uh, this is late 1800s too. Right. So everything was legal. <laughs> nothing. No, it wasn't legal. It was just hard to track. Fair. I think. Yeah, you get away with fucking anything back then. <laughs> Additionally, he may have enjoyed experimenting with the bodies. I knew it. Ew. I knew it. He jizzed on them. Oh, fucking weirdo. fucking weirdo. It's safe to say that even though Holmes was uh, despicable and murderous, he was also a very clever man. Deceiving people, 
came extremely easy to Holmes, who had a charming demeanor about himself. He was a smooth talker and had the ability to manipulate almost everyone around him. He certainly did this with young Clara, who fell hard and fast for his charms, and it wasn't long before marriage and a child followed in 1880. However, Holmes had no intention of letting anyone or anything tie him down, and it wasn't long before he abandoned his wife and child, which, in hindsight, was actually a lucky break for Clara and her baby. The next few years in Holmes' life are vague, but it is believed that a few years after his separation from his wife and child, Holmes moved to Morse Forks in New York. There are rumors that Holmes was seen with a young child around this time who would later vanish. Oh, boy. Yeah, and when he was questioned about what had become of the child, he insisted that he return the child to his home in Massachusetts. Okay. There's not much information regarding this bit, but it is believed that Holmes, who was someone who was not known to stay in one place for very long, later fled town. Holmes would later pop up in Philadelphia, where he found work in a drugstore, but he didn't stay there for long after the sudden death of a female customer by poisoning. She was given the wrong medication from Holmes, but Mm. Holmes claimed he was innocent, and once again, he fled the area. Oh, boy. Right? No GPS, no cameras, I no know. fucking credit cards. That guy was gone. This guy is just leaving, uh, you know, bodies littered behind him. Yeah. Ugh. Kind of a trail. Right. A trail of dead. Body trail. <laughs> but this time he thought it was best to actually change his name from Mudget. He didn't want the death of the woman and probably the child from New York hanging over his head Mm. and being associated with his name. So he chose the name we all know him by today, H.H. Holmes. Sounds like an author of a fantasy novel series. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) One hot day in July of 1886, a well-dressed H.H. Holmes stepped over the threshold of Mr. and Mrs. Holton's Drugstore a very prosperous business on the northwest corner of South Wallace Avenue and West 63rd Street in Inglewood, Chicago. Okay. Since the Great Fire of Chicago, Inglewood had come a long way from its modest beginnings. After the fire, most of the people of Chicago fled to this little suburb on the city limits to restart their lives. Mm. And it wasn't long before the population multiplied and the location flourished. H.H. Holmes knew this too well, and it was for this reason he visited the Holton's Pharmacy that day. Holmes was always thinking ahead, always thinking of the next scam with no concern of the people's lives he ruined Hmm. or ended. With Holton's Drugstore being such a popular business, it was always busy and full of customers. Whatever your ailment, Holton's Pharmacy was sure to stock some kind of elixir or pill ointment or herbal concoction to treat your illness. Hmm. Recently, however, the busy trade was proving too much for Mr. and Mrs. Holton, who were quite honestly finding it hard to cope. Mr. Holton was in the later stages of prostate cancer, something that the many glass bottles of medicine and pills in the store could not cure. Hmm. He lay in his bed on the upper floor of the store and with Mrs. Holton struggling downstairs with the demanding crowds that were always coming through the door as she came closer and closer to collapse and losing her husband to cancer. Now, in my opinion, Holmes saw this as the perfect opportunity to turn on his deceitful charms, mm-hmm. and he did just that. 
As Holmes approached Mrs. Holton, the first thing she would have noticed was his expensive suit with flashes of gold coming from his cufflinks. He was handsome, very well-groomed, and had a perfectly trimmed mustache and an elegant fedora on his head. Hmm. Holmes knew how to put on a good show and just how to sell himself. Holmes introduced himself and made sure to include that he had graduated medical school and that he had experience working as a chemist. Of course, he left out the part about poisoning a customer, mm. but he proceeded to ask if there was a vacancy at the drugstore that he could fill. Mm. To Mrs. Holton, Holmes must have seemed like a gift from the gods, and she hired him on the spot. Holmes was natural behind the counter, organizing stock, filling prescriptions, and he was also a natural at charming the customers who were quickly impressed by Holmes, especially the female customers who puzzled at the fact that Holmes was still a bachelor mm -hmm. and hadn't taken a wife. Well... Yeah, little did they know that under a different name, he was still married. Yeah. Over the coming months, Holmes had completely gained the trust of the community and Mrs. Holton. He had gradually worked his way from serving customers and filling prescriptions to handling the accounts of the business, and after the death of Mr. Holton that, by the way, may or may not have been at the hands of Holmes. Certainly a suspect, I would say, right? in retrospect. Was pretty much running the store. As an exhausted and grieving Mrs. Halton had simply let Holmes take the reins. However, Holmes didn't want to be the employee for much longer. He wanted to own the business one day. Holmes offered to buy the store for Mrs. Halton, and she quickly agreed. After all, who better to sell the business to than this young man who came to the rescue uh, in her hour of need? Right. She asked only one thing of Holmes, that she be allowed to remain in the apartment above the shop. Holmes agreed, and the relevant paperwork was signed, and a deal was made that Holmes would make multiple payments to Mrs. Holton for the purchase of the store. And with that... A gold-lettered sign wet up above the door of the drugstore informing customers that the Haltons were old news and H.H. Holmes was now the new owner of the store. Hmm. Not the best idea for a business plan. But. Right. <laughs> of course, Holmes had absolutely no intention of paying Mrs. Holton, and each month he made up some kind of excuse as to why he couldn't pay her, hmm. something he would do again and again in future scams. Now, it became clear to Mrs. Halton that she'd been tricked by Holmes. His charms have won over her trust, and now she may never see her money. Mrs. Halton gave Holmes so many chances to pay the money that was owed, and after multiple failures to do so, she sought out legal action to force some money from Holmes. Now, there are versions of the story that state Mrs. Halton dropped the suit against Holmes and stayed in the area and lived out the rest of her life. Although, it is also rumored that for some unknown reason, Mrs. Holton mysteriously vanished, and no one knew where she had gone or why she had disappeared. Boat cruise, probably. <laughs> when her loyal customers, who had known her for years, inquired about her whereabouts, Holmes simply said she moved away. Boat cruise. Whether Mrs. Holton met her demise at the hands of H.H. H. Holmes is unclear, but one thing we do know is that it wasn't long before Holmes moved his belongings into the second floor apartment above the drugstore. Mm. Holmes now had a business that was making a nice little profit, and to make things even better, uh, he didn't have many expenses. Holmes loved money, 
and he hated to part with it. And besides, if the next part of his devious plan was going to succeed, he would need all the money he could get. So across the road from the pharmacy on the corner of 63rd and Wallace, Holmes had his eye on this big plot of land. He actually had watched this plot of land for quite some time. Holmes was always thinking ahead, and he had grand ideas for this piece of land where he planned to build his very own three-story building. Hmm. Now, on the ground floor of this, this giant building, he would create a row of shops that he'd rent out to merchants, as well as running some of them businesses himself. <laughs> on the third level, Holmes would create many apartment rooms for anyone wanting to visit the city of Chicago. But on the second floor, there would be multiple apartment rooms. Some were genuine rooms, and some would have a very different purpose. Wow. It was like a labyrinth to get around, full of twists and turns. This floor was built in a bizarre and complex manner with maze-like hallways, misleading doorways, and airtight chambers, specially hmm. designed to be the last room his guests would ever see as they gasped their final breath. Somebody had to help him construct that. Like the construction crew might be like, this is odd. Well, that's here. coming. That's coming. Okay. This is how he got around it. Okay. So he'd also have a specially built gas chambers, as well as greased chutes that led down to the dark basements where he intended to keep a medical table that more resembled a butcher block. Oh, boy. This was Holmes' dream, his masterpiece, Shit. his murder castle. Hmm. Holmes was now moving up in the world. He was now the proud owner of a very profitable pharmacy, and he was seen as a respectable gentleman in the area, and yet he remained a bachelor. In December of 1886, Holmes was away on business on a business trip in Minneapolis. Now, whether it was an actual business trip or something more sinister uh, was unclear. Now, here he met Myrta Z. Belknap, it wasn't long before Holmes had turned on his charms and won over the heart of Murda, who fell head over heels for Holmes, and by January of 1887, the already married Holmes and Murta were wed. After the wedding, Murta returned with Holmes to his pharmacy back in Chicago. Any customer that entered Holmes' pharmacy would have seen the married couple running the shop together, and it was clear to see that the quiet, young, blonde lady was totally content and enchanted by her loving husband. Hmm. However, like most women in Holmes' life, it wasn't long before he started to lose interest, and Murda's clinginess became a problem. Holmes thought she was cramping his style. It's hard to do killing when you got this lady clinging to you. Right, asking you questions mm -hmm. and always wanting to be with you. Look, do you want to do some killing or not? If you don't, <laughs> then get off me. So with his bride by his side, he was no longer in any position to turn on his flirtatious charms. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was a ladies' man and had a way with women. And with his wife around 24-7, he wasn't able to act out his desires. Hmm. Additionally... Murda may have gotten in the way of his planning future endeavors, and he decided that she needed to exist more in the background, rather than up front. It wasn't long before Murda would be spending less time in the pharmacy and more time in the back doing house chores. Hmm. After a short while, Murda started feeling more and more neglected, and it was clear that Holmes had simply lost interest, as he flirted with most of the women that crossed the threshold of his shop. Oh even though the relationship was hopeless, Murda hung on to hope. 
In those days, divorce was heavily frowned upon, so bringing the marriage to a close was a choice she wanted to avoid if possible. Another reason she stayed was because she would soon become a mother. Murda decided that she would stay married to Holmes no matter what. After all, he had totally won her over. She loved him, even if he had grown tired of her. Mm. The only course of action she could take was to move back in with her parents who would help her raise her child. Not surprisingly, Holmes happily agreed to this arrangement and provided financial support with promise to pay regular visits to his wife and child. The fact that Murda and her child made it out alive suggests that Holmes may have felt some kind of love for his second wife. Right. Or it was simply the easiest decision to move Murda on. After all, other women in Holmes' future would not be so lucky. Right. Nevertheless, Holmes was once again living alone, and he preferred this. He was now free to develop and enact his horrific plans. By the summer of 1888, the same year Jack the Ribber was slashing the throats of women in the streets of Whitechapel, hmm. Holmes had managed to get a hold of the lease for the land across the street. He could, at last, start planning his three-story monstrosity, and although as profitable as the pharmacy was, Holmes still didn't have the required funds to build what he had in mind. However, that had never stopped him before, and by the fall of 1888, construction had started on the vacant plot of land, and his plans would have this three-story building take up an entire plot of land, which was 50 by 162 feet. When finished, it would be quite an impressive building, hmm. even if it was a little hard on the eyes. Was it ugly? Apparently it was. I don't know. In the pictures I've seen, it just looks like a a big brick building that wow. looks kind of gothic, kind of. That's kind of Spokane in a nutshell. Yeah, it? it doesn't. I don't know. <laughs> it, it wasn't the most beautiful building, no. Okay. So it was not an attractive building at all, but the inside would be even more bizarre with its maze-like corridors, secret chutes, and questionable rooms. Mm. Holmes planned out every inch of the castle with piping that would run into most of the bedrooms and a control tap in his office, which he could turn on and pump gas into uh, the bedrooms after he trapped his customer or his victim. Yeah, I'm just finishing up putting the pipes in here. Right. Where do you want me to put the little thing? I know. You get to do it in the office like an evil fucker. Locking them in from the outside. So he, he would lock them in from the outside and then turn the gas on. Mm. There were also secret sliding walls, peepholes, and the greased chutes I mentioned earlier that Fuck. went straight down to the basement where Holmes kept his acid tank. Crocky. Quick lime, Fuck. Quick lime vats and the dissecting table. Now, this is how Holmes disposed of the corpses without walking the corridors of the castle. It's like fucking squid game in this guy's house. It's awful. Awful. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, Holmes didn't want to raise any suspicion as to what it was that he was actually building. I mean, it wasn't just a row of shops to rent in a hotel. It was also a place he could trap, torture, and kill. Yes. Something his pharmacy across the road wasn't built for. Mm-hmm. But no, when most of the buildings really aren't, I know think pe- about it. people don't actually go in and be like, I need a trap, torture and kill building. Yeah. Yikes. God, where's the trap, torture and kill district? You know, I know. <laughs> most big cities have that. <laughs> Not this one, though. But when building from ground up, Holmes could plan out exactly what he needed. 
However, he would need someone to build it for him. Yeah, some unscrupulous motherfucker. So, to avoid suspicion, it couldn't be just one team of contractors. It would have to be multiple teams of contractors. Mm, What a nightmare. Luckily, there was always someone in need of work, and carpenters and men who offered to work hard labor were never far away. So... To avoid suspicion, Holmes would only offer work to those who most requested it, and mm. he would give the worker a small part of the building to complete. Just the murder room for you, sir. Well, it was just like little tiny sections. Mm-hmm. So when that tiny part of the building was complete, Holmes would simply say their work wasn't acceptable and then fire them on the spot. What a nightmare for everyone that built that place. Right. Uh, On top of all the shit he did, he was a terrible guy to work for. Yep. So he'd fire them on the spot before bringing in another contractor who was desperate for work to take his place. In this way, Holmes was able to bring in fresh eyes that didn't see the complexity of the finished project. The only person who had a complete vision of the build was Holmes himself. Because of the lengths Holmes took to keep the suspicions away from his build, it took over a year and a half to complete. And during that time, Holmes hired over 500 workers. This also said, that's a lot of people. Yeah, it is. Fuck. So many people were so frustrated. I know. Well, this also saved Holmes a great deal of money. After telling the workers that payment would only come on completion of their jobs... Want to save some money? Fuck people over, I guess. Right? Well, then he'd simply accuse them of of doing a crappy job and then fire them on the spot, Mm -hmm. sending them away with no pay. Now, of course, the work that was done on Holmes' building was of great quality, but Holmes had no intention of ever paying a wage if he could get away with not doing so. I wonder if somebody did finagle a few dollars out of him what a dick where they're like no buddy give me the money right that shit's nice mahogany bitch i know i know i did a good job bitch fucking piss proof bro you can (laughs) just hose it down that's because of me pay me interestingly enough holmes scammy ways didn't stop at construction he would also furnish the entire building on credit and simply not pay a dime. Nice. When the furnisher showed up to get paid, Holmes simply made up some kind of excuse or a lie, turned on his charms, and sent away the debt collector. Or sent him upstairs. Why don't you take a left at the uh, torture? I mean, the, right? the bathroom there. Just go ahead and clean it up. <laughs> so he'd send away the debt collector, content that the money would follow the following week. And of course, it never did. Right. He had zero intention to pay for his debts. Now, one particular example of this, which I found kind of funny, uh, was when Holmes purchased a walk-in safe. Now, this thing was massive. Hmm. Once Holmes had the safe delivered, he wasted no time in having whatever poor worker that happened to be under his thumb at that time install it on the third floor of the castle. A giant safe all the way up to the third floor of the castle. Wow. And then... What the fuck? How did they do that? How did they even do it? I don't know. But then he actually had a room built around the safe, completely enveloping it with a building. Hmm. The safe was now totally trapped in this room, and there was no way to bring it out without causing some kind of damage to the structure of the building. He did not intend to move. Right. Well, and Holmes knew this. And due to the fact that he had absolutely no intention of paying a dime for the massive safe, he thought it was necessary to ensure that it was deeply installed right away. Wow, okay. Now, of course, after months of non-payment by Holmes... They came looking for their shit that was deeply embedded in his home. (laughs) 
<laughs> the safe company decided that they were wasting their time asking for late payments and simply decided to repossess the safe. Uh-huh. Now, when they came to collect, Holmes told them that they could absolutely take the safe away. Mm-hmm. That was not a problem. However, if they caused any kind of damage to his property, he would sue them for as much as he could. And so the safe company thought it was actually safer to take a loss and leave the safe where it was rather than be slapped with a lawsuit. This guy's just walking around frustrating everyone that owns a business. I know. Everyone that's doing anything, trying to make something better. I know. Here comes H.H. Holmes. He's awful. Fucking dick. So they simply walked away, wrote off the debt, and Holmes had gained himself an incredibly expensive safe absolutely free of charge. Now, the cons came easy to Holmes. He was a cunning deviant who could charm a snake if he needed to, but he couldn't hold back the sheer number of angry workers that were demanding money from him after all the work they had put into the castle. Now, this is where a man named Benjamin Freelon Peisel comes to the story. Benjamin was a father of six children, Deza Jane Peisel, Etta Alice Peisel, Rosa Nell Peisel, Howard Robert Peisel, Noble Neville Peisel, who sadly passed away before his second birthday. Sounds like a great band, the Peisels. I know the Peisels. And Horton Monroe Peisel. Wow. Benjamin absolutely doted on his children and his wife, Carrie. And it's safe to say that Benjamin did everything he could to put food on the table for this really large family. In his early life, Benjamin was a hardworking, attractive man who was not afraid to get his hands dirty. But Benjamin also had an alcohol problem, often drowning his stress and anguish. Over time, the booze had slowly destroyed the version of the man he once was, and the numerous bar fights he got into didn't help his physical appearance, which included a prominent broken nose and missing teeth that had either rotted out or been punched from his mouth. Hmm. Benjamin also had several run-ins with the law, But his devotion to provide for his family always shined through. And in November 1889, Benjamin saw an ad in the local newspaper. The ad was asking for experienced carpenters to assist in the construction of a brand new building in Inglewood. And the applicant should ask for Dr. H.H. Holmes. Benjamin went for the interview and got the job. But unlike the countless other workers that helped with the construction of the castle, Holmes saw the weakness in Benjamin's eyes and used it against him. Starting out as a laborer, Benjamin quickly became Holmes's partner in crime to some context. He became a sort of protector. Holmes had him exactly where he wanted him, at his side, whenever he called. Peisel would go on helping Holmes in multiple illegal activities, not quite knowing exactly how evil Holmes actually was. And before the end of this story... Heisel will play a very large part in the downfall of H.H. Holmes. Well, good. But we'll come back to this part later. Okay. So with the castle now complete, Holmes was ready to sell the pharmacy across the road. You know, the one he basically stole from poor Mrs. Horton a few years back. Right. And it wasn't long before he had an interested buyer, a gentleman named A.L. Jones, who had traveled to Chicago with a brand new wife and a substantial amount of inheritance. 
A.L. Jones was invited to walk through the pharmacy, and what he saw must have impressed him, as the shop was absolutely teeming with customers. Mm. It was his intention to become a successful businessman and start a family. Mm. And what better business to buy than this very busy pharmacy in a prime location? And, more importantly, there was zero competition. Right. However, unbeknownst to A.L. Jones, Holmes had actually paid all of the customers off to fill up the shop that day. Oh, dick. Right. He paid everyone to be there. What a scuzz in everything he does ever. Oh, it gets better. So to make the pharmacy look even more profitable than it actually was. And with that, he AL, added zeros to the accounting too. Why not? Just he probably he probably did. Oh, that's actually I made money there. Ugh. A. L. Jones made up his mind and shook Holmes' hand. And in July of 1890, the business was sold. But prior to the completion of the sale, this guy's such a dick. Holmes stripped the store of all stock and furnishings. What a cunt. Anything that was worth anything was taken away. So when A.L. Jones moved into the shop, he was shocked to see that not everything was included in the sale as he thought. Wow. But still, he and his wife preserved, uh, they persevered at making his new business work. Uh, Well, that's a good location, we think. Right, Mm. right. So a few weeks later, this gets better. Mm. Oh, I was so frustrated when I was hearing about this. So a few weeks later, A.L. Jones peeked out his store window across the road at the castle to see a giant delivery of shiny new store fittings. Oh, my God. He opened a competitive computer. Beautifully painted cabinets and a gorgeous large counter that would hold a cash register. He did not think about the non-compete clause in that contract, I bet. (laughs) The delivery men carried the furnishings into the vacant storefront on the ground floor of the castle. And it wasn't long before a freshly varnished sign went up above the new store, which read H.H. Holmes Pharmacy. Fucking bro. What a douche. Wow. Everything about Holmes' new pharmacy was elegant with marble worktops. Of course, he doesn't pay anybody for anything. Mm, Right. All the marble people were killed in the murder room. I know. Or, you know, he had them installed and he's like, yeah, you can take them, but don't damage anything. Mm -hmm. They have to be pried up because they're glued down. It's fucking nice, man. Uh, he figured out how to scam the fuck out of your spell. So they had marble worktops, high ceilings. There was a shiny tile floor that you could see your face in. Mm. Okay, now that bothered me. That was stated several times in my research. A shiny tile floor that you could see your face in. In the bathroom? Uh, was it so he could look at his balls? No, I think it was all over the place. So these women that were walking around in these dresses. Oh, of course. I would... I, nope, I didn't. He probably s- did still want to look at his own butthole, too. I'm sure that had Ugh. something to do with it. <laughs> but you're right. You're right. And this place was stocked with every kind of medicine, ointment, and elixir you could ever think of. Hmm. It wasn't long before the newlyweds of the now shabby looking pharmacy across the road went out of business. I bet. They lost every dime of their money and eventually moved away from Chicago. Now, Holmes's new pharmacy wasn't the only business Holmes ran on the ground floor of his castle. In fact, he had his hand in many different business ideas. This man possibly loved money more than murder. Holmes would now become an inventor, convincing people that his inventions worked when in fact the man was lying through his teeth. This included a machine he invented that turned water into an illuminating gas. Okay. Okay. So, of course, it it didn't. 
Mr. Nikola Tesla over I know. here, the fucking guy. It it didn't it didn't work. But Holmes would pour water into one side of this contraption, and then water somehow changed to gas and came out of a pipe on the other side. Holmes would then strike a match and prove that the water had indeed t- turned into a gas and the flame was produced. However, he'd simply fitted an actual gas pipe into the contraption. Mm -hmm. But he fooled everyone, and the investors offered Holmes $10,000 to bring his machine to the market. Crocky fuck. Holmes would eventually be found out about this con, but once again, he simply got away with it. (laughs) It's kind of impressive uh, that he initially, you know, Con so many people. He's just looking around the world like you're all stupid and trusting and right. Well, you know, hi. We know how to react with people. Right. This guy's we just don't expect people to be fucking cons. douche. You're the reason laws. Right. Well, and this is what Holmes was good at: lying, cheating, and charming. These traits always went hand in hand too. Hmm. Should Holmes, be a politician. Holmes always had an attractive young lady behind the counter of his pharmacy. Still a politician. And quite often he would strike up a romantic relationship with the assistant. But of course, politician. it wouldn't be long before Holmes got bored and decided to, it was time for his assistant to disappear and a new one would simply take her place. Getting tired of saying it, politician. It is speculated that the previous employees may have met their end on Holmes' torture rack wow. or his butcher block. Uh, then they were burned in the kiln uh, Holmes had installed in the basement that per- burned at 3,000 degrees. Wow. This kiln burned so hot that it could be used for making glass. Wow. In fact, that is exactly what Holmes told the man that installed the furnace. That's exactly what he told him, that he intended to make windows. Instead, it was to melt bones. <laughs> However, his intentions were to burn evidence, wow. and the heat was capable of burning bones into nothing. That dude felt like he had outsmarted this whole dumb planet. I, I know. Or at least this whole dumb city. Well, as well as a very lucrative hotel and pharmacy, Holmes also had his hand in a few other businesses. And one of them was a jewelry store. Mm. Sometime in 1890, an ad went into the paper stating that Holmes needed someone to run the jewelers for him. I mean, let's be real. With all his responsibilities and lying and conning and who the fuck knows what else he was up to. There shouldn't be anybody out in the streets that doesn't know he's a piece of shit at this well, point. All I, the, the contractors whole, talk. They're like, no. They, don't they probably all guy. hate him. I would think so. But he probably had little time to spare. So it he is need, a big city. He needed some help because he was up to fuckery. Right. So a gentleman named Ned Connor answered the ad and the position was given to him right away. Oh, Neddy. After all, his experience at being a jeweler and a watchmaker made him perfect for the position. So Ned once um, owned his own little shop in Davenport, which did all right. But to say he was successful is not a word that people would use to describe him. In fact, poor Ned was said to have very little going for him. Yes, he was a good watch repairman and knew about his trade, but he lacked something about his character and luck always seemed to sidestep him. He was a timid man and had very little confidence. So it came to a great shock to all that knew him when he managed to charm a young lady named Julia Smythe. Julia was attractive and stood nearly six feet tall with chestnut hair and deep green eyes. She was actually the personification of the ideal attractive female in that time period. And many men could have given anything 
to be with her, but Julia didn't want just any man. She fell for Ned as soon as she laid eyes on him. Hmm. And to many who knew her, uh, it did. It came as a shock. The pair just didn't seem to match. She was very ambitious and oozed confidence, whereas Ned, well, Ned didn't. It's not to say that Ned wasn't a hard worker, and he was known to be very a, a very nice man who did have ambitions, but he lacked charm and the confidence to, pr- to pursue his passions. Mm-hmm. But Julia saw something in him that others simply didn't, and by early 1880, Julia and Ned were married. But the union of the two lovebirds did not improve Ned's business skills, <laughs> and it became more and more clear that the store was not doing well. And now money was getting tight, and it wasn't long before tension boiled over between the two and arguments were frequent. But in 1882, Julia told him the happy news that they were having a baby. Things must have seemed like they were changing for the better, and maybe the addition of a son or daughter could bless their marriage. But the pregnancy turned out to be anything but a blessing. The child would be born, stillborn. But life goes on, and Ned and Julia felt that life in Davenport was never going to grant them the happiness that they were looking for, so they packed up their belongings and headed to better opportunities. However, over the next seven years, they moved between multiple different towns, trying their hardest to make a life for themselves, but success was always just out of reach. Now, in 1887, Julia gave birth to a baby girl named Pearl. Maybe now everything was starting to look up. Maybe now the future held promise. Two years later, Ned, Julia, and Pearl would arrive in Chicago. And it wasn't long before he answered the ad placed by H.H. Holmes and got this job. Shit. Ned's luck seemed to finally be on the up and up. When, (laughs) in fact, it was probably the most unlucky decision he had ever made. Especially for Julia and Pearl. Oh, fuck. Ned was given the manager's position and $12 a week, as well as room and board for his little family on the third floor of the castle. Unfortunately, over the next couple of months, Holmes became infatuated with Julia, and Holmes immediately turned on his deviant charms to win her over. If Holmes was going to make Julia his mistress, he decided he needed her closer to him on the day-to-day basis, so he actually fired his pharmacy shop assistant that other girl Mm -hmm. and brought Julia in to take her place. And eventually he did. He won Julia over. Fucking A. Well, after all, her marriage was already on the verge of collapse for several years. And it had been for quite some time. And all of a sudden, Julia was getting attention from this charming and successful businessman. Everything that her husband evidently was not. The affair became obvious to all the locals who entered the store Except Ned himself, which was kind of weird. Son of a bitch, Ned. He he just went on oblivious. Or maybe just turning a blind eye in order to keep his position as manager. But eventually, even Ned couldn't ignore the blatant affair that his wife was having with Holmes right under his nose. When he confronted her and gave her the choice of him or Holmes, Julia picked Holmes. and, And poor Ned moved out of the castle and found employment elsewhere. He eventually left Chicago with no wife or child, dragging his crushed dreams along with him. After a few months, Holmes once again started to grow bored of Julia. 
Maybe it was because the challenge to take a married woman away from her husband was now complete. Or maybe it was because she had gone from being a mistress to insisting that she have more to do in his life and business. But if it was anything that put the final nail in the coffin, so to speak, was a reveal that Julia was now pregnant and Holmes was going to be a father. Again. So, of course, it was now necessary to marry Julia. Holmes was already finding Julia and her daughter Pearl a massive inconvenience. So the inclusion of a newborn child and another wedding was something he could not allow. So Holmes went about making Julia think that he was going to marry her, but he made her aware that he already had a daughter and he would now be adopting Pearl as his own and he was not ready to father another child. So Marriage was on the table, but if Julia wanted to be Mrs. Holmes, she would have to agree to an abortion. Holmes claimed that he had experience in this procedure from his medical days. come on, no, fuck. Well, of course, Julia was horrified by this ultimatum, but Holmes always managed to get his way. So Julia agreed to the abortion, and Holmes picked a date to abort the baby. December the 24th, Christmas Eve. How lovely is that? Oh, wow. So, on Christmas Eve night, Holmes told Julia it was time, but before the procedure could take place, Pearl, little two-year-old Pearl, needed to go to bed. So, Holmes scooped her up and carried her up towards the bedroom, stopping off at the office to grab a cloth and a glass bottle of liquid. What? And we're going to leave off there. Oh, for fucking... That's part one. You have the friendly friends just waiting on the edge of their seats like, we're coming. I know. Fuck. Um, uh, This this just touched on a few things. Next week's episode, I'm going to do my best not to get too into what he did, but I can't tell the story without doing it. Okay. So... It's a murder house and he finally gets to spring all his traps, huh? Right. Right. So... Uh, this is the last sentence is a teaser of, of where we're going to start off next week. And if you don't want to hear about this, uh, fucking crazy historical figure, which everyone pretty much knows the story already. I don't really know it that well. Okay. I never well, did any research on this character. Well, too bad. You have to hear the story, but yeah. if our listeners don't want to hear the story, avoid, you, avoid, you may want to skip, uh, yeah. Second half of HH H. Holmes, which is next week, episode 84. But what, if you what's are, what's Theo Vaughn doing right now? Well, if find you, out. but if you are interested in hearing what he did, join us. Right. Let's talk about what we learned about right now. On the other side of the thing. On this thing? On this thing. Right here. And now the conclusion to this week's dipshit files. Well, my main question, wife, before I, before I get to the question, uh, thank you for the research. Oh, you're welcome. Another fucking bang-up job, wife Oh, well, thank you. Bang-up job. You can, you know, <laughs> if you want to flop your tits out, you should, because you <laughs> earned it. You earned it. But my question is, mm-hmm. and I might not be alone in this question, Okay. Is, who is doing murder castles now? today i wonder oh my gosh because this was the idea in the 19th century late 19th century asshole Mm -hmm. with technology of late 19th century asshole and Mm -hmm. probably pretty good technology uh, i personally well well coming from that background i don't think it's really possible uh, i hope not because contractors are like no i'm not putting up with you motherfucker well unless you're caught this cunt Unless oh. you're out in the middle of nowhere and you're building it yourself, mm-hmm. um, even still, 
the you have to pay taxes on your land mm-hmm. you have to there's de- so many permits at this point i know you have to declare improvements you have to pull a permit just to like put a lawn just put out a welcome mat i know you have to have inspections mm-hmm. and all of this stuff and if you're going to build or do an addition on your home it has to be within you know specs of especially a murder chamber I know, room death place county standards and they need plans and there's permits you have to wait for so building a murder house unless you are a high level um, crazy person Luminous. with lots of power right uh, and obviously lots of money to pay people off to keep them quiet so we need to go to all the black rock and state street <laughs> and vanguard folk and check their basements is what right. you're saying well even still check if the only way to keep a secret is to you know not tell anyone and, right. if, you, and if you tell somebody kill them Ugh. that's the only way what a weird planet we woke i know up right in. Fuck Ugh. me. Well, this is a two-parter, so we're not going to yeah. spend too much time talking about what we learned. But right, a life of a complete fuckery. What Frustrating. A, what a terrible. This I, this guy must have been infuriating. You know, to I, be around. I grew up knowing a few scam artists because my dad did business and mm-hmm. he got scammed by a few people, mm-hmm. and he taught me a few things. and And we watched one guy. He kind of came in and out of our life. Yeah. And I want to check his basement. Oh, really? Fuck. I, I, because he exudes mm-hmm. the, the ability to just fuck people over willy-nilly. Yeah. I just mean, like, meh. Yeah, like you're a different species. You're just uh, like, I'm a predator and you're prey and you, your steak's on the table by choice and consent by not being <laughs> smart enough. It's like, holy fuck, dude. Right. Someone give that guy all the hugs. Yeah. Uh, hug him better? Okay. Yeah. Well, we're going to leave you with that. Thank you to our trusted turd triad. Yes. Chris Bodie, Don, we appreciate the shit out of you guys. Mm-hmm. We appreciate our trusted turd herders, mm-hmm. which includes the Reddit regulators, PJ and Minnie. Mm-hmm. But everyone that's manning any kind of page for Scatcast anywhere yeah. in the Scatcast verse. <laughs> Scatverse. We appreciate the shit out of you. <laughs> it's a lot of you at this point, and it's quite a quite a fam, quite yeah. an army. I think we probably look like a cult to the government at this point. <laughs> Uh, we're certainly starting to rival the juggalos in their beginning stages. I don't know how you feel about that, but, uh, it's, it's the poop cult. Yeah. I can imagine sitting in some Congress, <laughs> like what did you, what's this poop thing about? Well, it started off with a script keepers audio theater and it mm-hmm. kind of just whoop, it from just there kind of went to a pile of poo. Yeah, I did. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys so much for everything that you do. Info at scatcast.com to let us know any more stories that that might be useful to the dipshit files and Mm -hmm. all that stuff. Let us know how we're doing. Yeah. Also, our Patreon is always happy to take your money. We certainly love to do things in there. There's Mm -hmm. tons of bonus stuff, tons and tons of different crazy things, videos all holiday season long. Mm -hmm. It's going to be fun. And that's really all I have for you guys this week or this day. But thank you so much for doing all that research. You're very welcome. We appreciate you telling our stories. Mm-hmm. Get my head and shit. Thanks for listening. Even though it was dark and terrible, I still wanted a little bit of cocoa. Yeah. I wanted to wrap in a blanket a bit. Did you? I did. I wish I had some slippers that fit me and <laughs> weren't destroyed by the dog. Way to go, dog. Oh, just wait till next week. Oh, boy. Friendly friends are friendly as fuck next week, yes. it sounds like, for sure. I'm sure. All right. Well, as always, we'll talk at you in the future. And it'll seem like the present. Bye. Bye. Bing, Bing bong, bong. Boo.